Do you ever struggle with remembering details from your travels? Then I've got something special for you. How would you like a better way to keep track of all the things you see and experience in Scotland? A way to keep those special memories and all the details fresh for years to come. My new Scotland travel journal might just be what you need. It includes daily journaling prompts to help you start writing about your day, lots of space for doodling and notes, prompts to reflect on your trip overall, and suggestions for things to do that help you make more meaningful connections with Scotland. There's also inspiration for your travel bucket list, a map to draw your route, space to keep track of your travel details, and some Gaelic and Scottish phrases to try while you're here. All you have to do is print out the journal, fold the pages in half and start writing. The Scotland Travel Journal is the perfect companion for your upcoming trip to Scotland. Find it in the Watch Me See online shop or visit the link in the show notes. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello there, and welcome to Wild for Scotland, a podcast full of immersive travel stories from Scotland. I'm your host and storyteller, Cathy Kamleitner. Wild for Scotland helps you connect with Scotland, its people, wildlife, landscapes and histories. In every episode, I either whisk you away on a beautiful adventure or introduce you to inspiring locals and their stories. In between, I share my top tips for your own Scotland trip and how to follow in my footsteps. So lean back and enjoy. Let's travel to Scotland. In today's episode, I'm whisking you away to the magical Isle of Mull. I'm not going to tell you a story about the island though. For that, head back to season two and listen to the episode called Wild Isle. Instead, I'm introducing you to a person who lives on the island and the organisation she works for. I met Caroline Willis at the Marine Forum in Glasgow, an event that brings together ocean researchers and enthusiasts. And even though the plan for this season was not fully formed yet, I remember inviting her on the show to tell me about ocean-friendly tourism in Scotland and more about the work she does for the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust. But before we get to that, here's a wee reminder that Wild for Scotland is an independent podcast. And while it's free to listen to our travel stories and interviews, it does actually cost quite a bit to produce our episodes. So if you enjoy listening to the podcast and you can afford it, consider joining our Patreon community. The monthly contributions from our Patreon supporters really help us with producing more episodes of Wild for Scotland for you. You can visit wildforscotland.com support to find out more about our Patreon community and join anytime. Now, back to today's episode. Back in August, I travelled from Oban to the Isle of Mull. Caroline and I went out to one of the Hebridean Whale Trail sites, and even though our conversation got interrupted by a swarm of midges and a spontaneous dip in the sea, we managed to cover a lot in our conversation. We'll talk about the marine species you can find on the Scottish west coast, the negative impacts that boat trips can have on them, and an alternative low-impact activity you can try on your next trip to the coast. We also talk about the research conducted by the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust, 
the importance of citizen science, and Caroline shares a few fascinating and sometimes gory facts about her favourite marine mammals. So without further ado, here's Caroline Willis on ocean-friendly tourism in Scotland. Hello! Hello! How are you? Thank you very much. Welcome to Yana Bell. Thank you, thank you. I'm part just a Well, my name is Caroline Willis. I go by she, her. I am the Community Engagement Officer for the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust. I feel very lucky. I feel like I've lucked out with one of the best jobs in the world. I get the job of chatting to people across the west coast of Scotland, um, local people, communities, tourists, uh, local groups, charities, individuals about the amazing marine wildlife that we see here on the west coast of Scotland. Um, get to do lots of talks, walks. Yeah, it's a really fabulous job. I really love it. Cool. It sounds really diverse. And you're based here on the Isle of Mull, which mm. is where we are right now, sitting on the edge of a cliff, looking out into the sea. We just saw a ferry uh, move by coming from Tyree. So it's a really lovely spot. We see quite a lot of the coastline, both of Mull. We see Col in the distance and Ardnermarchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a clear day. Well. Um, on a clear day, we would be able to see out to muck, egg, rum, uh, the cool ends of sky you can sometimes oh. see as well. Um, and if it's yeah, super clear, uh, you cannot see all the way across to Barra. So it's wow. a pretty spectacular spot here. Yeah, What a fantastic place to, to have a chat um, about all things marine tourism and how we can do that in a responsible way as well. You mentioned you work for the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust and they have actually been featured on the podcast before. So some people might remember going back to season three, I had a short conversation with maybe your predecessor or or a colleague of yours Mm -hmm. about cetaceans and and marine wildlife here in Scotland. But for anybody who hasn't listened to that, can you catch us up and tell us a bit what the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust is and the work that you do? Absolutely, yes. So um, we are a small conservation research charity based here um, in the colourful town of Tobermory on the Isle of Mull. And we really advocate for um, healthy seas for whales, dolphins, porpoises and people. So we work in various ways to protect and value these species that we have right on our doorstep here. Um, so we do this yeah, a few different ways. Uh, we, like I said, are a research-based charity. So we conduct research on board a vessel called Silurian. She She's a sailing yacht. Um, yeah, she's have a very special place in our hearts. Um, we take her out across the Hebrides, collecting data of international importance. And we'll talk about her, I'm sure, a lot as we go on. And that really, really helps us to understand the seas, understand the species that we see here and uh, what's changing. And so we're able to then make informed conservation decisions. So we know exactly uh, what the right protection is to help look after these species. So that's a huge part of the work that we do. We also go into schools. We We do lots of education programs, which is really good fun. And then we've got a lot of outreach as well. So we have our Hebridean Whale Centre in Tobermory on the main street that uh, visitors and local people can come in and learn all about whales and dolphins. We run lots of guided walks and talks from there. So that's a really fun part of of the work as well. And you mentioned earlier as we were driving here that this part of 
the west coast is actually a marine protected area for minke whales, which mm. is one of the species, if you're very lucky, uh, and I was actually a few weeks ago very lucky to see for the very first time in this part of the sea. What is the marine environment like here and, and what makes it so special? What kinds of species can we expect? Yeah, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So what we're looking out over right now is a global hotspot for whales, dolphins and porpoises. And the collective name for this is cetaceans. But we also see lots of other marine megafauna, basking sharks. We see otters. There was even a walrus seen earlier this year. Wow. <laughs> it's um, a bit far south, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> so it's an incredible area to be watching out for whales, dolphins and porpoises. There's actually been 24 different species uh, recorded in these waters, which I think always blows my mind. I think I always thought you had to go far and wide to Norway or Iceland, Canada to see some species that we have just on our doorstep. But the reason that it is such a spectacular place um, is actually because of the productivity around here. And minke whales in particular love it because they migrate back here and they feed on a lot of, a lot of the nutrient-rich waters around our coastline. And the reason it is so nutrient-rich is because of a couple of different reasons. Firstly, we have a lot of offshoots from the Gulf Stream. So we've got really warm oceanic current coming up from the south and the west. And that's mixing with the really cool coastal currents that we see around our coastline. And this causes a lot of upwelling of nutrients um, and causes it to be a yeah, really, really fantastic place to be feeding. Um, and it supports a huge number of species. We also here on the west coast have a really complex coastline and um, it's really really diverse we see areas where it gets really deep straight off the coastline and um, there's areas between islands where water rushes there's protected sea locks a total kind of diversity of habitats um, and this really dictates some of the species that live here and um, we see um, really for example around Tyree basking sharks love it around there it's really really shallow and it's a fantastic place for them to be feeding and like I said it was a marine protected area for minky whales but the Sea of the Hebrides that we're looking over right now is also a marine protected area for basking sharks as well so it's recognised to be really important for these species here to, to feed. And then the research that you do obviously knowing how many of these animals are around and how important specific areas maybe even specific bays or stretches mm -hmm. of coastline are to them that's what then informs the creation of these marine protected areas, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. We're able to to use data from our research vessel Silurian to prove that there's a huge number of these species in inhabiting these waters and feeding here. And so we know just how vital it is for key parts of their of their life cycles. So for example, um, minke whales, yeah, fantastic place for them here in the Sea of the Hebrides. On board our research vessel Silurian, some of the data that we collect is photo identification. Um, so somebody's out on deck with a camera trying to get some really, really good imagery of some of the, the minke whales that we see around here, um, as well as other species. And um, the way we do this is we get a photo of both sides of the dorsal fin. And just like you and I, our fingerprints are unique. It's the same with the dorsal fin. So they'll have notches and scars and really unique features that we are able to recognize that to an individual level. Um, so we know, for example, that an individual called Nobble, um, who has a little Nobble right at the tip of his dorsal fin, um, that's how he's he's got his nickname. Uh, he's actually returned to this waters every year, almost since 2002, oh. um, which is, yeah, he, he loves it here. Um, he returns to the same, within the same three nautical miles. That's incredible. Honestly. 
yeah, it's yeah, it's the same with a, a number of of the minke whales that we see around here, um, and so we're able to learn a lot from that. We're able to track some of these individuals and recognise that by taking these photo identification images, uh, we can learn so much from that. We can understand that this is a really important area for them. We can track their movements. We can understand about the population and how they're doing, abundance, health, for example. Um, so it's a really valuable and non-invasive way that we can um, identify that this is a fantastic area and mm. and we're then able to inform these decisions to to implement marine protected areas for them around here. That's fantastic and so it sounds like these waters are just hoaching with all <laughs> sorts of animals and yet of course it is really lucky that if you actually get to see one of them, like the minky whale we saw from the ferry to Tyree, that was the first time I'd ever seen a whale. Um, never mind in Scotland, it's the first time I've ever seen a whale in my life. And I've obviously been on many boats, on many ferries in Scotland throughout yeah. my travels. Mm-hmm. And I felt so lucky. So I, it, I think it's quite an interesting thing to know that there's so many of them around and it's so important for so many species. And yet it is such a an element of luck that you need to actually see them. And it's something a lot of people ask me about whale watching in Scotland. And I do encourage people to to give it a try. But I do think it's that element of, of surprise almost um, that you do need to keep that in mind, that it's Absolutely. not a given mm-hmm. that you see them all the time. Definitely. I do think it's a real privilege Um that's, and that's part of the excitement of whale watching. I mean, people head out and you never know what you're going to see. You could be that person to spot the walrus. You could have an amazing pod of dolphins or you could just have a lovely day looking out across the Hebrides. And um, I think it's never time wasted with eyes on the sea. But I think that's part of the excitement and the adventure with it all is never knowing what's next to break the surface. Recently here in the last two weeks, we've had two different fin whales reported um, and some amazing imagery of these individuals. And it's just the most exciting thing. It's the second largest whale in the whole world, uh, just found here off the, off the coastline of Col. And it's spectacular to see, you know, that's not something that I would ever say when when people uh, come into the centre and love to hear about the species that we see. A fin whale isn't one that I would uh, pick to talk about straight away because uh, the fin whales that we've seen here recently, yeah, definitely um, aren't a common occurrence. Uh, they're the first one that we've seen for 18 years in this area, uh, which is really, really exciting. But that's it. You just, the people that went out on that boat that day had no idea that they were going to see a fin whale. And I think that's all part of the excitement is that you, you can head out um, on a headland, out on a boat, and you just don't know what you're going to come across. And yeah, it's really, really exciting. Absolutely. And even seeing maybe the more common species is just such an exciting experience, mm-hmm. I think. And and having them so close, you know, whether it's a seal or a, a dolphin mm-hmm. or a porpoise, it's still such an Absolutely. incredible experience. Yeah, my favourite is the common dolphin. They are a beautiful species. Um, they have this kind of creamy hourglass flank pattern and they are quite regularly sighted around the Hebrides. Um, but they still are my favourite because I think it's impossible not to smile when you're watching them. They love to come and ride next to the boats and breach. And um, yeah, they're just incredible species. And they're actually one 
one that we've done quite a lot of study on um, with the Whale and Dolphin Trust. If I was talking to you, if we were sat here 20 years ago, um, I wouldn't have a huge amount to say about common dolphins. Um, in 2004, uh, there were no sightings of common dolphins off Silurian at all. Nowadays, they're one of the most commonly spotted species from, from our research vessel. And yeah, it makes you wonder why. Why have we seen so many more in recent years? Uh, the numbers they think have increased sort of tenfold. Um, and there kind of could be a few different reasons for this. Potentially, the population is just booming and doing really, really well. But we're kind of doing quite a lot of research into the potential of climate change being a big mm. factor into seeing more of them. We know that our seas are warming kind of 0.5 degrees every decade. And if you think since 2004, that's almost 20 years, that's almost a whole degree worth of warming. Um, that's going to have significant impacts on our marine environment. Um, and that's potentially kind of in favour for the common dolphins. It's kind of bittersweet, really. It's, it's lovely to see so many more of them, but potentially not quite for the right reasons. But again, this is kind of what getting data and yeah, by contributing data and heading out on Silurian and doing this kind of long-term monitoring, which we, we really, really um, advocate for, it means that we're able to kind of answer some of these unanswered questions. Yeah, it's really interesting because of Obviously, these changes to populations and, and maybe behaviour as well don't happen overnight, but it does take a long time to to even notice that, especially when sightings are so far apart, like you mentioned with the fin whale, actually making these conclusions and having that data sounds such an important bit of, of the whole puzzle, I guess. Um, you mentioned non-invasive ways of, of whale watching, and we'll get back to that a little bit um, throughout this conversation, but it kind of made me think, with marine tourism and more and more people wanting to experience that, are there any negative impacts that marine tourism has on cetaceans and, and other marine species? Yes, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to be able to experience marine wildlife from from boats, from uh, vessels, uh, but it definitely needs to be done in a responsible way. Um, noise pollution is a problem in the marine environment. We The seas are getting busier. There's many, many more boat operators going out trying to watch out for marine wildlife. And that's a really exciting thing to be doing. Um, but we just need to make sure that this happens in a really kind of responsible way so that we're not disturbing the marine Marine wildlife and they're able to go about their business as they as usual if you imagine uh, it can cause a lot of energy to, to move away from a vessel and they could be using this energy to feed to mate so it's really really vital that we're involved with the the development of more whale watching boats heading out and making sure that this industry develops in a really sustainable way so noise pollution it, it can be disruptive to whales and dolphins it can cause them to move out of their environment um, and also if boats are hanging around for too long and too close to the individuals or the pods again these are causing threats and and um uh, disturbing the animal and making them potentially have to move away and, and disperse this energy that they could use elsewhere so at the well and dolphin trust we absolutely recommend for people to head out with um boat operators that are wise accredited and this basically means they um they've completed a course on how to act responsibly around marine wildlife so they know um how long to stay stay with the animals how far away they should be which is 100 meters or more um and for about 15 minutes um before they move on and this is this is fantastic because it means that the animal we can enjoy watching the animals but they aren't impacted um, by lots of boats being about all the time. Um, and it means that kind of everybody wins in that scenario. 
That's fantastic. And I guess the wise scheme is something you can, you should be able to very easily see on an operator's website mm-hmm. to Absolutely. see if they've signed up for it. And it's good to know that that's something to look out for, yeah. to find a responsible and trustworthy mm-hmm. um, activity provider as well and make sure you're not accidentally contributing mm. to something that is actually harmful uh, because of course the the, mm-hmm. the aim is to see these wonderful creatures and experience them in mm. their natural environment and natural behavior for mm. as long as possible um, yeah over the next generations to come as well Mm. and it's definitely getting busier and it's wonderful like I said with the increase of people being interested I think we've got people like David Attenborough and the Blue Planet Effect to thank for so many more people coming up to Scotland definitely that are interested in nature and wildlife and that's definitely something we want to encourage it's amazing that we kind of it's lovely that people can go out and feel the passion and see see lots of incredible marine wildlife but we want this to keep happening and and develop in a really sustainable way so that um yeah yeah they're protected and we can really enjoy the encounters as well Absolutely. and it, in many ways that you could see more things by doing that if you act responsibly um you you know it means that the the species will remain there they're not being encouraged to move away constantly and then we'll see more in the long run um it's definitely definitely better (laughs) so going out on the boat does have an impact um on the marine species but you mentioned that you do guided walks and again if if people have listened to the episode and that featured the hebridean whale and dolphin trust in the past you know that there is also the opportunity to go land-based whale watching which was something very new to me um can you talk a bit about that and how that works and also how people can kind of get start any tips for spotting whales from land absolutely yes so i work on a project called the hebridean whale trail um, and this is a network of sites all across the hebrides there's 33 sites all the way up to cape wrath across to st kilda uh, down to the isle of Arran, and they are fantastic spots to watch out from land so it's really low impact and you take yourself uh, to the headlands and just watch out over the sea it's a, a really wonderful way to be present and watch out for marine wildlife um, and spectacular spots to do so. The reason these sites were chosen was also not just because of the incredible marine wildlife you can see around them, but also that the landscape, the culture, the heritage, the communities, there's kind of more to it than just watching out for fins. But yeah, some there's some top tips on and what, when you're watching out from land is definitely to, I think patience is the main top tip I can give. Um, the key key to whale watching is that you probably are going to spend a lot of time out on headlands watching out and potentially not seeing very much. But um, like I said earlier, there's there's no kind of no time wasted with eyes on the sea, I think. And um, But things to look out for are diving birds, example, gannets, these beautiful seabirds. They can dive at something like 60 kilometres an hour. Um, um, that's a really good sign that there's lots of fish about and it's a really fantastic sign that there could be some fins around. Diving birds and then splashing, leaping out of the water, of course. If you've seen something that catches your eye, uh, that's a sign that there could be um, some fins around. Um, there's also something called the whale's footprint. And this is where it looks kind of glossy on the surface, like someone's poured oil on the surface. Um, and that's um, a sign that um, something might have come up, broken the water tension at the surface and then gone back down. But yeah, lots of lots of top tips for watching out. But I think uh, patience and enjoying watching out and seeing 
again, it's amazing how many people go out watching for uh, whales and dolphins, but actually end up falling in love with the seabirds that we see around here, because that's often what you end up watching whilst you're watching out as well. But yeah, the whale trail is a brilliant place to to watch out and um, spend some time with eyes on the sea and also get to know lots of different areas. You you might come for the whales and dolphins, but you stay because you, you kind of immerse yourself within the local community and understand a bit about the culture here and um, like the Gallic history is incredibly interesting um, all across the Hebrides has a really rich heritage and it's really intertwined with the sea as well so um, there's a huge amount to learn and gain from lots of different sites and give back as well. And of course where we are right now at Glengorm is one of the sites on the Hebridean Whale Trail and I've been to quite a few I think over the years on different islands and also on the mainland there's one near Oban um, and like you say and, and it's similar to here yes it would be nice if we now saw something in the water but it is just absolutely stunning the way it is you can go for a swim you can go for a walk around the headland there's the, the castle with the farm shop and the cafe and you you can just immerse yourself in that community and in that landscape. It's not just about whale watching. Whereas I think if you're on a boat, you need to be lucky either way to mm. see anything mm -hmm. on the water, I think. So you might as well be in a place where there's other things to do and it doesn't feel like the only thing you're here for is, is to mm. look at something in the water. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there definitely is a culture nowadays of rushing about and zooming through places and the big ethos behind the Hebridean Whale Trail is actually about taking that time to slow down. So a lot of the boat operators coming out of Tobermory, they zoom right out to areas like the Cairns of Coal and rightly so, it's an incredible place to whale watch. Um, but the Whale Trail is about taking your time and slowly travelling through places. I think a lot of time people uh, in the car, out the car, take a photo, back in the car, carry on to the next place and then um, kind of we would zoom past some of the places that have, like you say, we've just taken a short walk from the cafe and we found this beautiful bathing pool. We've got high cliffs here. The geology is amazing. There's um, hides where you can watch out for otters and seals and eagles. There's so much here. It's so rich in wildlife, in heritage, in culture. Um, and taking the time to just stop and immerse yourself into it and learn something new and admire the shells that we were just then on the shore. There's so much to see and from big to small. And even if we don't see a fin break the surface today, it's still just wonderful to to be in this environment and I think you can still get so much from it doesn't Absolutely. just yeah not, I agree yeah <laughs> but now when you are lucky enough to see something on a site whether it's on the whale trail or on a boat or from a ferry or anywhere else really what do you then do with that information do you just keep it to yourself and <laughs> and feel very very lucky or is there anything that can be done with the individual experiences people have around the the west coast mm. as well Definitely don't keep it to yourself. I want to hear it all. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust have an app called Whale Track. It's free to download and it's really easy to use and you can report your sightings to us. Um, so it's a really, really wonderful work of citizen scientists that um, are out and about, like you said, on ferries. It can be done from land. And there's a various different ways you can report your sightings to us. But it's really, really valuable data and it contributes to a, a whole database 
of sightings network that we're able to make to contribute to our understanding of the species that we see on the west coast of Scotland and um, like I said previously kind of inform the decision making to enable us to better um, protect the species that we see here but whale tracks are brilliant, brilliant app. It's a really easy way that you can report exactly where you are, whether that is on a vessel or on land, um, what you've seen, what it's doing. You can report the behaviour as well. So this is really a valuable information. Um, for example, if, if it looks like they're feeding in, the, in a certain area, that tells us a lot of information about uh, that species and what they might be doing in various regions of the Hebrides. So you can report your sightings to us. Um, and there's also an interactive live map on the app, which means that you can go in and see what other people have seen as well um, all across the Hebrides. You can filter it so you can, if you're particularly after uh, seeing where the killer whales are, for example, or when they were last seen, you can um, play around with the settings and and see where they've uh, last been spotted. Um, so that's really fun and very addictive. Um, in the centre, we're checking it every morning, what's been seen, where, and it's really, really good fun. It's also got a species ID guide. So if you're not really sure what you're looking out for, um, you can have a little look through that and it's got all the surfacing profiles information as well which I think is really handy sometimes especially if a species is quite far away and you're not quite sure what you're looking at seeing how it, it surfaces um, is really valuable information to try and figure out exactly what you're looking at but yeah absolutely please report your sightings to us um, it all does feed back into this database um, and helps inform better conservation I think it's really wonderful, including people all around our coastline. Citizen science is just a fantastic thing. And it means that people like you and I can get involved with the bigger picture. You don't need to be a marine researcher and have spent years and years at university to make a big, big difference. Um, you could just be out for a wander here in Glengorm, see a minky whale breach and pop that onto our app. And it's it's all, all the same sort of, it's still really, really valuable um, and helps us, like I said, to better understand our marine environment. Absolutely. We, we use the live tracking feature a lot, actually, um, on a recent trip to the Isle of Col because we knew the killer whales were around the area. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to stay around. I know they can travel quite long distances in a relatively short period of time. But one of our group was actually lucky enough to spot both Jonko and Aquarius from land. So she was on a coastal wow, walk. Very lucky. Um, and saw them both. We were all absolutely dying with jealousy. <laughs> but at the same time, so excited. And, and mm. she was probably the best person to catch it because she had a big camera with a zoom lens. If I had seen them, Brilliant. there would be a very blurry, terrible image with a tiny speck <laughs> of, a, of a dorsal fin, um, even though they're so big. So it was actually fantastic because she could take pictures, videos, yeah. And, and show it all to all of us, but then also mm -hmm. share it. Um, I need to double check that she's actually put in, in the Whale Track app as well, well and reported it. And that's the great thing with the Whale Track app. There are a few different ways to report your sightings. So you can uh, do a one off sighting. So your friend can go back and uh, backdate it. So it's still not too late. Um, you can definitely still time to report that sighting. Um, and like you said, imagery is a really, really valuable um, way for us to verify a lot of the sightings as well. And so we ask people if they have photos, you can report at them through the app. Um, and that's really, really valuable for us yeah, to verify the species and also learn a lot more, um, like I said, with the photos.
greater identification information. We can learn so much just from imagery. But this example of John Coe and Aquarius, even if you've got actually quite a bad photo from far away, because John Coe's dorsal fin has this ginormous notch out of it, making him really distinctive. So even if the photo is not very good, or like myself, I'm often, I find myself filming the sky or <laughs> with a shaky hand because it's so exciting. Um, you can still quite often determine that it is John Coe because of that big notch out of his dorsal fin. <laughs> yeah, and I think for anyone who doesn't know, we should maybe explain a little bit about John Coe and Aquarius, the two remaining, mm -hmm. or possibly the two remaining mm -hmm. orcas or killer whales, I should say, of the West Coast community in Scotland. Can you just, in a nutshell, Absolutely, tell yeah. listeners a bit about them? Yeah. Well, firstly, in Gaelic, killer whale or orca is madakuine. And it is, I think, a really, really wonderful uh, way to describe them. It translates to ocean wolf, uh, which is very fitting because they are, of course, uh, really kind of pack pack animals and they're really social creatures as well. Um, but yes, Jonko and Aquarius are two killer whales of the West Coast community that uh, are a resident pod here on the West Coast. We have seen them in places like Ireland, down as far as Cornwall, but they generally tend to spend most of their time here on the West Coast. Um, and like you referred to, um, they are the two that we see most regularly. They used to be a much larger pod of kind of up to about 13, we think, but um, these two have only been seen now for the last five or six years. Um, so they are deemed to potentially be the last two remaining of this pod. Back in 2016 on the Isle of Tyree, the ninth killer whale of the pod, her name was Lulu. Um, she washed ashore. Unfortunately, she was deceased um, and they did lots of studies. They did a necropsy where they sent off really important uh, samples of Lulu to be analysed and they found the results quite shocking. Um, she was found to be the most polluted marine mammal ever known to man which I think is absolutely devastating. And the problem is PCBs. Um, so this stands for polychlorinated biphenyls. And they were banned in the late 1980s, but unfortunately they're just a really stable compound and they remain really prevalent within our marine environment and don't break down very quickly at all. Killer whales are particularly vulnerable to this because they are right at the top of the food chain. So they just get a really kind of big um, dose of PCBs when they're feeding on things like seals and harbour porpoises like the marine mammal feeding West Coast community are. So Lulu was found to have a hundred times the level of these toxins. I, it's really, really shocking and it's difficult to talk about. Um, she was also deemed infertile and there was no kind of evidence that she'd ever been pregnant. So it's a really sad story and it's hard to imagine when we look out today over this beautiful blue sea that there is this kind of killer, this like invisible killer almost to the, the killer whale population here. Um, but it's really likely that within my lifetime, we're going to see the extinction um, of this really unique pod of killer whales here on the west coast of Scotland. Um, I hope that we can learn from this and... Yeah, be able to, what we've learned from studying this particular pod of killer whales, which we've been doing so now at the Trust since the 1980s, I think the first few images of them were taken, take what we've learned to try and prevent this happening to other pods um, around the world. Absolutely. And there is, of course, the North Isles community mm. um, around Shetland and Orkney mm. that comes down from Iceland. They're not resident, but they are visiting Scotland regularly. And of course, there are many orca pods and other whale species pods uh, and individuals all over the world. And like you say, it's a shame, but hopefully at least we can learn and take something away from it and, and do our best to avoid something similar happening to others. 
in the future. I think it makes it a real privilege when you do get the chance to see them. I think it's a privilege to to see any marine mammal, um, but especially like the likes of the the killer whales, for sure. Absolutely. I guess the next level up from doing whale watching on a boat or land-based or, you know, in your spare time, basically, or as a one-off experience is to then actually go out and do more of it and You mentioned it before, the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust has a research vessel, the Silurian. And you can actually, as a regular person, I, as a non-biologist or scientist, could come and and join one of those research cruises. Can you tell our listeners how that works and what it entails and, and, and how that data, I guess, or how their contributions are used in the end as well? Totally, yeah. I absolutely recommend anybody that's interested to uh, read up about Silurian. Absolutely, please. If you've got any questions, get in touch and would love um, you to join on board. It was one of the funnest weeks ever being on board Silurian. Uh, so we run trips kind of between seven to 12 days, um, heading out across the Hebrides. Um, and she is a research boat. So it's a working holiday. Um, everyone's expected to, to muck in. Um, but there's four crew members and then six uh, paying volunteers. Um, and we head out on straight line transects across the Hebrides. Um, so it is all done under survey protocol. And this research has been um, going on for, well, 20, this is the 21st year um, of collecting this type of research. So it's a really, really um, good data, really, really solid long-term data set, uh, which is fantastic for us to be able to um, to understand and um extrapolate this data in a kind of with confident with confidence I suppose but we collect data in a few different ways on board so we've got visual survey so people are stood out on deck on the mast um, you're not allowed to talk to them they're busy scanning the seas for fins um, and they have to call extremely loudly if they see anything um, so that's kind of one way that we collect we also tow something called a hydrophone behind the boats. Now, this is basically a, a ginormous microphone um, that uh, yeah, we tow behind the boat as, as we're underway. And this picks up the recordings of the marine soundscape, uh, which is really fascinating and not something I knew very much about before I joined the Trust. So you can hear all the whistles and clicks and squeaks made, as you can imagine, um, whales and dolphins they really rely heavily on sound and to communicate and find their food and so this hydrophone is picking up um, this information and it's a really really valuable data set um, the acoustic data that we collect and then we also have our photo identification where we take an imagery as we go along as well of the species that we encounter Um, so it's a really fantastic lots of different ways to to collect the data on board and lots of different areas to to become familiar with Um, but as you join it, you don't have to have any prior knowledge at all. You don't need to be a marine mammal me- expert. Like any, yeah, like you said, anybody can join us on board. We give you all the correct training, um, and it's the camaraderie on board. It's just, it's just an apps. It's yeah, it's really really fun. It's a really uh, brilliant week. You get to go to some incredible anchorages, sailing uh, all all weathers, all areas of the Hebrides. <laughs> and I guess you at the end of the week you have sea legs, um, developed mm-hmm. sea legs, and a, and a tolerance for seasickness as well. That would be my biggest concern. I think if I had to commit to working, especially maybe underboard, uh, mm-hmm. un- or 
especially on their deck, I would probably be quite scared of that. But I'm sure you you develop a kind of tolerance for all of that. Yeah, absolutely. It actually kind of only takes about 24 hours, I think, to find your sea legs. But you're also more than welcome to take seasickness medication. Many people do. <laughs> and if you're feeling a bit naff, then we'll, we'll make sure you're off survey so you can take some time to recover. That's absolutely allowed. Um, but yeah, like you said before, the, the data we're collecting and what that goes um, towards, um, yeah, the, the guests that join us on board for the week really do become marine mammal scientists. Um, and we really, really value and appreciate everybody that's been on board. It's been over a thousand people now um, that have become volunteers and sailed with us, uh, which is really, really wonderful, a really lovely community of people Um and Silurian has done the equivalent of three times around the world of sailing, which, yeah, <laughs> is pretty impressive. She's actually got a bit of an interesting history, Silurian. Um, we like to refer to her as a bad girl turned good. Um, she was impounded in the Caribbean for smuggling drugs um, <laughs> um, before she was then bought by a young couple um, the gentleman was a carpenter, so he he um, yeah did her all up. Maybe got rid of all these secret compartments she may have had, um, and they sailed her across to the Azores, where she was used as a filming platform um, for Blue Planet. So if oh, you've wow. seen any of the dolphin footage in the first Blue Planet series, um, that was done from onboard Silurian, uh, and then the trust bought her um, and yeah decked her out. Um, and yeah, twenty one years later, we've been collecting. Uh, we've got a really really solid data set of information. What a life um, for a boat. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're now actually going to listen to a few of the recordings that are taken from aboard the Silurian, or I should rather say with the hydrophone that tangles behind the Silurian. Um, so yeah, have a listen. The sound you're currently hearing is a recording of the West Coast community Killer Whales, recorded in 2007. Now, you're hearing the whistles of some common dolphins. This is the noise a ship makes underwater, along with acoustic deterrent devices. Pretty loud, right? And this is a clip of Harbour Porpoise clicks. That recording has been slowed down 32 times to make the clicks audible because they're ultrasonic when listening in real time. A number of bandstop filters have also been applied 
to remove any other background noise. Thanks to the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust for sharing these recordings with us. With the hydrophone, we do a lot of acoustic monitoring and specifically for harbour porpoises here on the west coast of Scotland. Um, a little bit of information about harbour porpoises first. They are actually the smallest of the cetaceans that we see here. So they're about a metre to a metre and a half. Um, they uh, have this very triangular dorsal fin. They eat 550 fish an hour. That's my yeah my fun fact about them. <laughs> it's <laughs> impressive. <laughs> um, and despite their size, they're actually the UK's most effective predator. Uh, so yeah, they look a bit inconspicuous, but they actually uh, have a lot to say for themselves. Uh, they have a 97% success rate when they're feeding. Wow. Um, so that's if you think kind of these big birds of prey kind of between kind of nine to 15 percent I think kind of success rate so 97 percent is in- incredible but the way they surface is um very very shy they they roll through the water like a rolling tire as described um but they're not very splashy and active and they don't you said you saw your minky whale breaching the other day and common dolphins are really known for riding next to the boat harbour porpoises on the other hand they don't really like to be near boats um and they very not very showy when they're um when they're surfacing now, if we're trying to monitor this species, that makes it really, really difficult if we're watching from land or on a boat to, to see them at all. And it's made even more challenging if the weather turns against us um, and there's a bit more chop. If there's lots of waves about, the harbour porpoises just get lost among the waves and it's really difficult to spot them. My colleague was on Silurian a few years ago and said that within the space of kind of 15, 20 minutes, she'd seen 10 harbour porpoises. I mean, that's a phenomenal Mm. number. But the hydrophone had picked up something like 25 of them. (laughs) It's really, really valuable because it makes our data unbiased. It means that we can actually get an accurate figure of the number of harbour porpoises present. And we're not relying solely on visual surveys, which um, for this this species in particular, isn't the best way potentially to get information on them. Um, So why is that important? Um, So we've estimated that there's about 65,000 harbour porpoises here on the west coast of Scotland. So if they're eating 550 fish, it's a surprise there's any fish left, I always (laughs) think. Um, So our data that collected this information on harbour porpoises has been able to, to show that the Hebrides is a vital area for them. They're here all year round and it's clearly a fantastic feeding grounds for them. Um, and as a result, a special area of conservation has been designated. This is a European designation uh, just for harbour porpoises here on the west coast of Scotland. Um, and so anyone that's been on Silurian that's helped collect data um, has contributed to this designation and I think that's a really really wonderful thing that you can come on board and uh, really contribute to these um, growing data sets and our growing understanding of these species and be able to make a real difference. Absolutely and then that way also ensure that visitors who maybe don't have the, the, the time or the opportunity to come on board still being able to enjoy that species and and Mm -hmm. they're lucky also see that species Mm -hmm. in other contexts as well so that's that's really lovely i think such a great way to be a part of something so important that seems so big and hard to do but actually every little action can contribute to the bigger goal i guess are there any Mm -hmm. other species that 
you are particularly fascinated by who live here on the west coast of Scotland? Oh, I think I could be here for hours talking about the difference. Yeah. Um, Open the can of worms. <laughs> um, Bottlenose dolphin are a really another really, really beautiful species that we see here. Um, we think there's about 60 that kind of inhabit the West Coast um, and they're kind of broken up into a few different pods. So pod is a group of, of dolphins and um there's a pod that like to hang around that are kind of resident to the Barra area. So they're called the Barra boys. Um, <laughs> but I think they're actually not just a male population. There's obviously females there too, as there's been some young uh, born recently. So uh, maybe Barra babes is more fitting. <laughs> um, but then we see lots around Mull as well, the bottlenose dolphin, kind of an inner Hebridean pod. And then actually in the Clyde, um, a pod's just uh, taken up residency in the last couple of years. And they've recently had a calf, which has been called the which has been called Clyde, um, which I think is really, really wonderful. Um, for bottlenose dolphins, my favourite fact of all time is about the calves uh, when they're born they're born with too much skin and it's called fetal folds they it rolls in on each other the skin so the top layer will be um, start to tan and go that lovely gray color and as the the calves grow slowly grow into their skin and the skin stretches out uh, these paler bits that have been folded in that haven't been exposed to the sunlight yet remain this bright white color so as they grow into their skin and it stretches out you see these white lines along their back and it looks a bit like a zebra I think <laughs> or a bit like um, tie-dye <laughs> yeah yeah for sure <laughs> uh, they're like uh, natural stretch marks that are beautiful <laughs> um, there's so many fascinating facts about marine animals you told me in the car up here about how you age a whale or how you can tell the age of a whale and how it depends on whether um, they have teeth or not can yeah. you this is maybe a bit gross <laughs> listeners beware but can you repeat and tell our listeners how people can tell the age of a whale Totally. There's so many fun, gory facts that I absolutely love. Um, yeah, so whales and dolphins can be split into two groups. So odontocetes and mysticetes are the Latin names for, for these kind of designations. Um, so odontocetes, um, you can hear in the word dont, sounds like dent, like dentist. Um, and these are the toothed whales. And then you've got the mysticetes, um, which are the baleen whales. Now with our odontocetes, tooth whales, um, you can age them by uh, cutting their teeth in half and just like rings of a tree you can count the number of layers um, and work out just how old the species was so this is a lot easier as you can imagine for things like sperm whales they have really chunky heavy teeth um, and you can see the the rings really easily when you if you are to slice one of their teeth in half um, but you can't do this with the whales that have baleen uh, now, for a bit of context, baleen um, is kind of like a big brush that hangs from the top of the mouth of some whales. It hangs like a curtain down from the roof of their mouth, and they'll have about kind of two to three hundred of these plates. And the way it works um, is like a ginormous sieve, basically, in their mouth. So they take a huge gulp of water with all the, the krill, the fish, the plankton in, um, in but they don't want to swallow their salty seawater. So what they do is um, inflate their tongue. They fill it full of air and push out all the water uh, through these fine, fine kind of hairs. 
and all the fish and the krill and plankton that they they want to eat they're left with inside so they'll scrape that off with their big tongue and swallow them up uh, so yeah fascinating to see yeah <laughs> um, and it's made from keratin these uh, these hairs just like our fingernails and our um, and our hair but of course the baleen is constantly regenerating and we're not able to determine age and uh, we can we can learn a lot from the baleen actually we can uh, learn if the individual's been pregnant or been migrating for example this kind of information you can uh, determine from analyzing the baleen but instead there's a different way that we can age uh, the mister seat whales so if we take go back millions of years when whales and dolphins they used to live on land used to be land animals before they headed back into water so they used to have ex- external layers like you and I but over time evolution did its thing and they now have internal layers which means they can hear much uh, more efficiently underwater but they still have a tube that runs out to where the ear would have sat um, when they had external layers and every year earwax builds up inside these tubes <laughs> so it's somebody's job to age them is to count the, the layers of earwax. Hmm. Um, so a glamorous <laughs> job, <laughs> as you can imagine. We will let a real scientist do that yeah, yeah. rather than <laughs> the poor citizen scientists. That can't be a nice thing to do. But how fascinating, you know, yeah. and all these little things. And the more I learn about whales, the more I learn these weird facts. Um, maybe mm-hmm. I'll get them out at a party one day <laughs> well counting but, counting layers of earwax yeah. <laughs> I don't think you'd have uh, many don't many think people. I'll make many friends yeah. like that <laughs> but I might fascinate a few people or get them to also learn about whales and, and marine species so I think it is nice to slowly accumulate more of these fun facts and, and weird things about animals like that and make them more fascinating and then care also more for them and and for their well-being. Um, Is there anything else you want our listeners to know about the work that you do, about marine species, about marine tourism here in Scotland? Uh, Yeah, is there anything else you want to make sure we include? Definitely download WellTrack if you're heading to our coastlines here. download and have a little play with the with the map and see what's been seen around the area that you're visiting and uh, please do contribute any data yourself if you're able to um, and if you're not wanting to find your sea legs then check out the Hebridean Whale Trail and um, take yourself to a headland do a watch from land um, contribute to really valuable citizen science and spend time within these communities and explore the local heritage and the culture and then of course if you're coming up to, to Tobermory itself one of our Hebridean whale trail sites uh, pop in and say hello at the Hebridean whale center uh, we're based on the main street in Tobermory and we've got lots of fun cool more teeth and bones more fun gory facts um, that you can come and learn all about uh, we run guided walks here at Glengorm, another whale trail site that we're at today um, that you can learn all about the local history and heritage and also spend some time um, with some of the experts watching out for whales and dolphins from land. Um, we also run a walk out to Tobermory Lighthouse. We run lots of interactive talks as well from our centre. So there's still lots to get involved with. Um, and yeah, check us out on um at hwdt.org uh, and whaletrail.org as well um, and yeah we'd love to, love to, to welcome you
Brilliant. Um, and that's actually where we're going to go now as well. Go and check out the, the centre in Tobermory, get some lunch, and hopefully I can get my hands on some of those weird whale teeth um, <laughs> and learn more about marine They're species in Scotland as well. <laughs> that sounds ominous. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for taking the time, Caroline, for taking me to this absolutely wonderful location. You've even made the sun come out. <laughs> and yeah, thanks for telling us so much about whales and dolphins and marine species and how to enjoy them and, and see them in a responsible way. I think this is going to be very useful for people who want to come and experience the West Coast and make sure that they don't negatively impact the environments that they want to see. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me today. It's been really lovely to meet you and please do come say hello if you're ever in Tobermory. We'd love to welcome your, your listeners um, into the centre. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Caroline Willis from the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust. Like she said, there are some fascinating marine wildlife out here in Scotland and it's definitely worth going out looking for it, at sea and from land. But whale watching isn't the only way to enjoy the beautiful Scottish coastline. Instead of our usual tips section, we've gathered up messages from operators and activity providers who offer low-impact activities above and below the surface, so you can truly immerse yourself in Scotland's seas. I'm Lindsay, and together with my partner Hugh, I run Sea Trek Scotland. We're based in Fort William and provide sea trekking, snorkeling, and co-steering activities in stunning locations across Lochaber. Sea trekking sees you following a route along the coastline, hiking on land, and snorkeling while towing a watertight bag with a change of clothes and some food. We offer day trips and an overnight experience, and it's one of the most incredible ways to immerse yourself in the Scottish coastline, witnessing both the landscape and wildlife on show. You can see some amazing images and videos of our trips on Instagram and Facebook, at Seatrek Scotland, or head straight to our website, www.seatrekscotland.co.uk, to book. I hope to see you on your next adventure. Hi, Chris Saunders here from Adventure Carrick. We are based in Girvan on the beautiful South Ayrshire coast. We offer various water adventures. These adventures range from half-day, full-day and multi-day experiences in canoeing, paddleboarding, sea kayaking and gorge walking. One of our most popular adventures is co-steering along a dramatic part of the Ayrshire coast renowned for its smuggling history. You'll be treading in the footprints of Ayrshire's famous poet Rabbi Burns and Sawney Bean, the famous Ayrshire cannibal. You'll be connecting deeply with this spectacular natural environment with the Elsa Craig in constant view. This adrenaline-inspired adventure will be a life-enhancing experience. Our holistic adventure guides are fully connected with both inner and external adventuring. Check out our adventurecarrot.com website to book one of our many adventures or connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Hi there, my name's Will and I co-run Kayak Summer Isles along with my friend Tim Hamlet. We're based out of Ullapool and Aquatibui. We run canoeing, canyoning and sea kayak expeditions, day trips and overnight trips in the Summer Isles and the surrounding area of Cork and Ascent. What we love most is sharing the wonders on the water, whether it be canoeing through a loch, exploring the hidden islands of Inverpolly 
or exploring the lovely beaches of the Summer Isles, the caves and arches, and the nature that lives within it. One of the pleasures of travelling by canoe or kayak is the ability to get up close and personal, respectfully, to the wildlife. We often see seals, dolphins, and a lot of seabirds. If you're interested, you can find us on www.kayaksummerisles.com. Hope to see you soon. I hope you feel inspired and will give some of these activities a try. You can also listen back to many of our previous episodes that feature adventures like kayaking in Loch Sunart, on the Galloway coast or around the Summer Isles. In this week's newsletter, I'll round up a list of our favourite outdoor adventures in Scotland that allow you to enjoy the sea without unintentionally harming it. You'll find the link to sign up in the show notes. And with this, I send you off to dream about your own wildlife-inspired trip to the west coast of Scotland. Whether you'll try your luck aboard a Calmac ferry, seek out one of the sites on the Hebridean Whale Trail, or join a research cruise on the Silurian. Next week, I'm taking you on a literary journey to Scottish tidal pools, freshwater lochs, and lots of other blue spaces around the country. I hope you'll tune in again. If you enjoyed this interview and learned something new, remember to take a screenshot of your podcast app right now and share it on your Instagram stories. And don't forget to tag us so we can say thank you. Wild for Scotland is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten path. The show is written and hosted by me, Kathy Kamleitner. Thanks to Fran Jarowskis, who's the co-producer and editor and does the sound design. Michelle Payne and Anesu Matanda Mambingo are supporting us with social media and transcripts. Podcast art is by Lizzie Vaughan Knight, and all original music is composed by Bruce Wallace. Until next time, when we travel to a different watery place in Scotland. If you're still here, listening all the way to the very end, it means you've probably got your hands full. So let me take this opportunity to remind you that I don't just write immersive travel stories. I also plan unforgettable itineraries for Scotland. And it's never been easier to follow one of my routes. Head to watchmesee.com forward slash shop to browse my ready-made Scotland itineraries and turn your travel dreams into reality.